Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I am so, so thrilled to bring to you this conversation with Mary Angelon Young, who is a prolific writer, a spiritual wanderer, as she calls herself, who knows so much and has had so many wonderful experiences in life. And we talk about the Baal tradition of Bengal and how this spirituality has informed her life, her travels, her guru, Lee Lazawick, travels with him and her Maha Guru, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. And some of her writing, we get into creativity and her new book, The Art of Contemplation, which is a highly accessible book that really gets at the heart of what's going on right now in the world and, and a new frame for looking at it, a spiritual frame, really, because in one part, she says that the revolution that is needed right now is a spiritual one. So we get really deep into that. And basically, the underlying conversation is about Tantra. How do we weave a life out of what's going on in reality? So I really hope you appreciate this as much as I had the joy and privilege of talking to her um, you can find out more about her work at maryangelonyoung.com. We'll have that in the show notes. You can you can order her book on Amazon um, or directly from Home Press, H-O-H-M Press. Let's just jump right in. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Angelon Young. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Paula. It's really great <laughs> to be here and great to see you again. I was so excited when your book arrived in my mailbox and I got to start reading it because I had totally forgotten that you were going to send it to me. And I started reading one of your older books and I was like, Oh, this is so perfect. I want to have her on the podcast. You've had such an interesting and rich life. And so I want to like jump in there. Like tell us a little bit about your journey. What led you to live on the land in Arkansas in the seventies and how did that end up in you studying transpersonal psychology and then meeting your guru? Can you give us a little bit of that information? Well, let's see. I would have to start, I think, with, uh, you know, what's happening in the era of the late 60s. When I came of age, uh, I turned 18 in November 1968, and uh, the world was changing. And I I always felt like a, a black sheep, you know, amidst, amongst a bunch of white sheep and that I couldn't find a place to fit in. I was in college, in university, studying English literature and many different things happened that led to my own disillusionment, including so the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and then, of course, the great icons of my era, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, and uh, there's one other that the Doors, um, Jim Morrison. These were just surface things, but a lot going on inside of me led me to a quest that involved psychedelics. I have to say um, that LSD and psilocybin were real initiatory and powerful spiritual experiences for me that really reconnected me to, to some wisdom inside myself, something that knew 
inside myself. And so that quest led me to my first community. I did what uh, many people of my era were doing, tune in, you know, turn on, drop out. So I literally did that. And I went to live at Sassafras, this incredibly beautiful 520 acres on this pristine land and uh, with a bunch of other heretical spiritual seekers. But we didn't have a teacher, a common, like one teacher. We were into all kinds of things. We were into Hindu tradition, Buddhism, uh, some Gurdjieff, uh, all just everything. And of course, Carlos Castaneda, who wrote you know, a whole series of books about his um, work with the, the Yaqui shaman, Don Juan. So we were interested and plugged into the whole culture in those years. And that was an incredibly powerful experience for me. But I don't want to dwell on it because I'm, we're, we're looking at the arc of my life. <laughs> you know, as in, in the Western astrology, at least, you know, when you turn 28, you go through your first Saturn return and Saturn has, you know, such a way of deconstructing anything that needs to be deconstructed. Of course, that happened for me. And so I left that first community and I, I actually worked as a, a truck driver in a collective for several years, driving big trucks. 18 wheelers across the country and hauling natural foods because we were a part of a natural foods cooperative in Arkansas. So we were involved in all, we got, you know, more involved politically. We're involved in supporting the um, Native American struggle at Big Mountain during that time, delivering food and clothes to them. And, and I, I, that was, you know, probably the most political period of my life. But throughout those years, what was so compelling for me spiritually was my relationship with the earth. Because in those early initiatory experiences with psychedelic, with the medicine, you know, we could say, because certainly I, I have great respect for the natural plant medicines the Divine Mother has provided for us, the wise use of those, I have to say. But a big part of what I got from those experiences was this deep love of the earth and of a divine, of, of great nature, and how nature can teach us and transmit the nature of reality to us. And so that was a big part of what led me back to the land in northern Arkansas, in the Ozarks. And um, Is that where you grew up? That's around the same area? or Well, I did grow up in Arkansas, but I grew up in southern Arkansas, right near the Louisiana border. And it's a different world mm-hmm. down there. It's, there's swamps and, and alligators and gars and, and you know you know it's more <laughs> mississippi delta deep it's much more deep south down there where i grew up mm-hmm. but yes it's in the same state first of all i just want to say like i pulled out my computer while you're talking because i wanted to see the coincidence of that you know we do recognize the saturn return and vedic astrology as something it is a phenomenon because saturn has returned to its natal position and it forces us to become an adult in certain ways and realize the nature of reality and and embrace our responsibilities. But it also coincided for you with your Venus Saturn period, which is like a caterpillar to butterfly moment. And the way that your Venus is situated, it's very powerful for going deep into the psyche. So this is interesting, because the Venus period is also when you studied transpersonal psychology, but also like psychedelic use and understanding yourself through medicine, through plant medicine, 
and also Tantra. So we're going to get into that as well. Like your, your Venus is literally in the process of being reborn as the evening star. So it's really cool. It's like there's this huge transformation. Like Venus is very powerful for you because it's in Libra, but it's also, it's causing this like reorientation to reality. It's really fascinating to hear you talk and to be thinking about it in that context. But yes, please go ahead. I want to hear about getting into transpersonal psych and meeting your guru. Okay. Well, that's, that's so exciting what you just shared about the, the perspective, the Jyotish, the Vedic perspective. And Venus, and I'm very aware of that. And of course, I'm going to skip over the astrology right now and go to the transpersonal psychology. So somewhere in there, I left the Arkansas Ozarks and I moved to Boulder, Colorado. And there I went back to school, got my degree, got my master's degree in, in, uh, in transpersonal psychology. And I fell in love with my what I would consider to be my first really formal teacher, C.G. Jung, who has continued to be a tremendous source of inspiration and help for me throughout the decades after that. So this was, you know, 35, 40 years ago. And so it was a huge change. It was a complete overhaul from where I had been in the 70s. But of course, bringing all that with me, because when you tune into great nature and to the earth, you are in the archetypal realm and you are in the realm of Tantra and you are in the realm of, uh, you know, what, what we, what the bowels call Sahaja, the natural innate wisdom, the, the primordial self. So all of this uh, flowed together for me. And, and around the time that I was really beginning to, I was uh, working uh, as a psychotherapist and, and I was beginning to teach a little bit. That's when I met my guru, Lee Lazowick. And very shortly after that, I moved to Arizona. Ashram was located in Prescott, Arizona, and I moved there and I started teaching at Prescott College, teaching mythology and transpersonal psych and some dream work and that kind of thing and and Jungian studies. And that was wonderful. I loved it. I loved doing that. But the path was really asking me to take a deep dive. And of course, I fell in love with my guru. And then I really fell in love with my Maha guru because Lee, of course, took me to India my first pilgrimage to India in 1993, and I met Yogi Ram Mahaguru. I call him my Mahaguru. He was, he was my guru, my teacher's beloved, and he became my beloved. And so that began, you know, a, a, you know decades of love affair with the Indian tradition and with, you know, really a deep dive into the Baul path and Tantra and this amazing way that the Baals synthesize Tantra and and uh, Bhakti, the razor's edge of Tantra, and then the devotional aspect of Bhakti, which is a, such a beautiful, such a beautiful synthesis, and, and it works very well. But, you know, Tantra being what it is, the razor's edge that it is, uh, I have to say, if we're going to talk about it, uh, don't advise anybody to try Tantra without a qualified guide somebody who knows what they're doing and is trustworthy. And as my teacher Lee used to say a lot often, he would say, don't just take what I say as the truth because I'm some kind of authority. Verify it for yourself. Find out what is true. And so I I have to qualify anything that we talk about in terms of Tantra. I have to qualify it in that way. It's, It's not to play with. 
There's so much in what you just said that I I want to unpack. I love everything that you shared. And so maybe we can talk a little bit more about the bowels and and like you've you've written books about them, right? So you know, can you tell us a little bit more like what you've learned from them in addition to this concept of sahaja, but like can you unpack that a little more and give people more of an understanding of how they combine that devotional aspect with tantra? Yeah. As I was writing to you a few days ago, I've been very fortunate to meet and travel with at times and have become very dear friends with Parvati Bowl, who's the spiritual daughter of Shanatandas Bowl, and spent a good deal of time in Pornadas Bowl's um, company with his family in Bengal and, um, and met the infamous Gorkapa and interviewed him. That interview was published, uh, um, excerpts from that interview and a kind of a, uh, article an, about my, that pilgrimage and, and being with the Bowels and being in Bengal. That was published in, uh, Namarupa back, I don't know, quite a number of years ago, but it is probably still available. It's also in my book, The Bowel Tradition, Sahaja Vision, East and West which is a combination of overview of the Baal tradition, which is a 500-year-old tradition. So for those listeners who don't know about the Baals, they were, they started out, and they still are, but they began as um, real revolutionaries and heretics of their time because they renounced their caste status. They refused to play the game of caste. They did not want any priest going between them and the divine. And so what they were looking for was a direct relationship, direct access, direct experience of divinity, the personal transformation that that involves. And all of that uh, for the bowels. I mean, they do practice very strict, traditional, formal practices like hatha yoga and breath practices, pranayama. Of course, mantra and all of that is part of the tradition. But they encode everything that they do, their practices, their culture, their spiritual culture, their teachings in their songs, in their poetry and in their songs. So it's all in Sandhya Basha. It's all in Twilight language. If you want it, you're going to have to work for it is is sort of the way that works. And that's, you know, really traditional in Tantra that in, in over the centuries and thousands of years, even you had to work to get these uh, kind of secret teachings. You know, in Buddhism, they say there's the outer guru, the inner guru, and then there's the secret guru, and there's the outer teaching, the inner teaching, and the secret teaching. So the Bowels have a lot of secret teaching that only that's only transmitted orally. Those teachings have more to do with the sexual yoga aspect of their practice. As far as their, you know, what we can look at from outside the Bowel traditions, we can look at it and say, oh, well, they have this beautiful, tremendous and deep trust in human nature and in the potential and possibility of the human being to realize for oneself as an individual. Who am I in the cosmos? What's my relationship to this incredible life, this world, the the whole cosmos, the earth and beyond? This is a very beautiful and important part of who the bowels are and what they have that is of such great value to us today. And they speak of this potential as the innate, the sahaja, 
the innate, the true nature. We we would probably say in English that's the closest is true nature. They wander from village to village with their ektara, which is a one-stringed instrument. I can I have mine here, um, but I, this isn't video, so I can't actually show it. The one-stringed instrument. They also play a dotara, which is two strings, and then the wildly creative anandalahari, which is just this crazy instrument. It's beautiful. You can hear it occasionally in some of Jayutal's music because he's got a link to the bowls and loves their music. And So they wander from village to village, bringing this message to the ordinary people who are struggling with very difficult lives in Bengal. They bring hope and they bring inspiration to people. Over the years, over this is, you know, started back about 500 years ago, growing out of the Sahaja, the Sahajiya uh, movements. There was a Vaishnava Sahajiya movement and a Tantric Buddhist Sahajiya, uh, Vajrayana Sahajiya movement. And out of those came the bowls. And that's a long story. Best understood probably through my book. It's called heretic lovers. <laughs> so let's have another a little plug of a book. But this is a historical fiction. It's a story that came to live with me on, um, I had already read Chandi Das's poetry because the story is about Chandi Das, who was a Brahmin priest, temple priest, who gave up his caste status for the love of Rami, a, a low caste washerwoman. And it's a beautiful story. It's been told many times in India and in Bengal. It's been immortalized in movies. But my book is a retelling in English from a Westerner. A Westerner who fell in love with Chandidas's poetry and then fell in love with Chandidas and Rami traveling in Bengal and in Birbhum specifically. On mm. I love all of this and I love just hearing you talk, but I want to pull out the thread of writing here because writing, you are a prolific writer. Like you've written so many books and they're so beautifully rendered. You've written fiction, you've written nonfiction, you've written like books that are very heavy and thick and have a lot of information about your gurus and being with your gurus and like just going into depth about their biography I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like talk about writing and we'll get into your current book as well. But like, can you talk a little bit about how you view writing? Is that part of your spiritual practice? Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Yes, uh, it's just something um, I'm very passionate about. As you can imagine, I do see writing very much as a spiritual practice and, and a very powerful spiritual practice also one that is transpersonal in the sense that writing down what we know and allowing whatever comes from the depths within us, like opening up to that, we discover that something in us does know a lot more than the conscious ego thinks it knows and can get, you know, really caught up in the whirlpools of of insecurity and doubt and anxiety. And especially in our times, anxiety and fear and all of this, that writing is one of the most powerful connections to the inner world that we have and connections to our, our own spiritual connection. We strengthen that, which is so needed in these, in this time period that we're going through this amazing uh, time that we're going through. Uh, when so much is slipping and sliding and, and going all over the place. Writing is very much a spiritual practice. My teacher Lay used to say, 
the degree to which we have integrated our experience on the spiritual path in life, in our life's journey, uh, the degree to which we've integrated it is reflected in, the, in, in our ability to articulate that experience. And so I would add to that and to bring eloquence to it, to bring beauty and poetry even, however that is for us. It doesn't have to be lush and over the top as some of my some of mine is. It can be very bare bones and still have tremendous bov, have tremendous um, mood and transmission power because I'm convinced that it is possible to transmit reality through the written word, through the magic of the written word through the use of language. But of course, that depends on how much truth we are telling. You know, writing is a process of self-discovery, of self-inquiry, of revelation, a process of that, that we are transformed in the process of doing it because it's a tremendous art form. And it teaches us, writing itself teaches us because we are actually accessing something within ourselves that knows. And that's being brought into consciousness and potentially integrated. But again, telling the truth. So right now I'm very passionate about memoir as well as uh, fiction, writing historical fiction, which I adore and love and think is a wonderful genre. But I'm passionate about memoir because it ha- it, it just takes you immediately into this possibility of writing as spiritual practice and writing as a direct way into the inner world and to personal integration of our experience. I say a lot more, of course, in my workshops that I give on writing and um, art as inner path. I, I uh, Before the pre-pandemic, I used to give workshops in Europe with my friend, Marian Zamarchi, Saraswati is her name, Marian Zamarchi. We combined singing because she's very deeply trained in raga and the Indian tradition of music, the beautiful raga and tala rhythm and, and sacred song. And so we would combine music and singing with writing, with this deep dive in writing. And these were so wonderful, these workshops, because what happened for the all of us who were participating and but now I'm giving workshops more over Zoom. I will be giving another memoir writing workshop in January. So people can contact me if they're interested oh, through my website, maryangelonyoung.com. And I'll just write your name down and your contact information and let you know when that's going to be happening. And we'll link that in the show notes so you can find it there. Um, I would love to get into your current book, The Art of Contemplation, which, you know, as I read it, I found myself in a state of contemplation because you kind of explore this topic from all these different lenses. So it feels like it's really a book for this time. It's beautifully written. You include some of your own stories to give examples. And you talk about nature a lot and you bring in the current predicament that we're in and also how we can like, where's the medicine inside of this? It feels really like a gift to people for this time. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how this book came to you and maybe even about your writing process. What does that look like? Hmm. That's a big subject. Uh, my writing, my writing process is a big subject. But I can say that that this particular book, because so many of my books have been nonfiction and they've been, like you said, big 
books, I wanted to write something really accessible and small. It had come to me through many different avenues, through different signs over the years that this would be a good direction to go in. Uh, and so when the pandemic hit, I found myself just one of my places of refuge, literally, is to go to writing in my writing practice and to take refuge there. As the pandemic, you know, continued and started in March of 2020 for me, early March, and I'd just been giving with Christina Sell and Regina Ryan, two of my dear, dear friends who I collaborate with a lot in, in teaching. We had just given a, a, a three-day workshop in Tucson, and we came home, and the pandemic had hit. And so it was this shock for so many of us. And, and I'm very fortunate that I live off-grid in a natural, pretty wild setting in the high desert. And so I was able to immerse myself in nature and to take refuge there in the five elements, uh, earth, air, fire, water, space, and uh, the sky, of course, being so such an incredible presence in the desert. So I started taking refuge in writing, and I found myself writing about what was happening. It just bubbled up, you know, from within my own processes of meditation and contemplation and being with myself. Something in me just said, this could be a book. And this could be a very small book. And this could, and I could, you know, share some of what I have to share that could hopefully really be of use to others at this time when we're all struggling with. And now we're a little, I think, you know, people are more, um, we're not as um, uh, sequestered at home. You know, sheltering in place in the way that we were the first year. But still, uh, it's not only the pandemic, it's climate change. It's the fear and anxiety and stress that's being created for, that is real for everybody. And so I very much wanted to offer something that might be useful for people. And then once I, once I made that decision that I would, and I, I pitched the idea to Home Press, to my, to the editor, Regina, my friend. Regina and I are kind of writing, we teach memoir workshops together and lead them. And we've been writing together for years off and on as, as friends. Like I'm writing what I write. She writes what she writes. And then we come together, which is a great thing for writers out there listening to this, having a writing buddy. Uh, who you can go to, to just say, okay, here's what I'm doing this week. Here's my idea. Maybe even read some of your material. So I pitched the idea to Regina and gave her some of the writing and, and she loved it. And so she got on board. My uh, publisher was on board. That's helpful. Very helpful. <laughs> um, so I just went with it. I was thinking to have you read Romance the Muse, which starts on 106 to the end of 108. And and since you were, you said it's a big topic to talk about your writing process, this may give people a sense a little bit about it, like it's the mystery and the unfolding, and also give them a taste of the writing and how you weave in these different thinkers and ideas from across time. So, okay, this is from... Um... The Art of Contemplation, page 106, Romance the Muse is the subtitle. It's in the chapter on creativity called Inspired Flow. 
The power to create was imagined in the ancient Greek culture as the nine muses, all of them beautiful women of differing temperaments and gifts. Being a woman myself, I know that she likes to be romanced, to have attention on her. She likes a beautiful space, the fragrance of a rose or a bouquet of summer flowers. She likes to be asked to dance, to laugh, and be playful. She loves music. She's colorful, wild, and lush, though she can be fierce and austere as well. Sometimes she's the simplicity of one note, one hue, one word, or silence itself. The muse hides when I'm furious or self-deprecating and becomes hesitant when I'm insecure. She basks in the warm and gracious mood of trust. She responds to the confidence and freedom of a spacious personality that can let go of concepts and shoulds. She enjoys love in all its moods and expressions. She is sensual in every way and rises up as joy in the human body. She deeply appreciates generosity. She moves by the spirit of the law, and she stops dead in her tracks at the letter of the law. She dances lightly through change and is exalted when she's carried by the flow of life. Her dwelling place is the heart. She is merciful and full of grace. She embraces us with all of our worries, fears, doubts, and flaws. The muse only asks that we be honest and present with what is, whatever it is. It is this full trust and acceptance that opens the floodgates of the moment. I recently saw the movie All is True about the life of William Shakespeare, a genius of awesome scope. In one scene, he is working in his garden when a young stranger walks by and stops for a chat. Realizing that the gardener is none other than the famous playwright and poet, he seeks advice about how to be a writer. He wonders, how did Shakespeare navigate the geography of the soul and write all of those amazing plays that took place in Italy or Scotland or on a ship sailing across the Atlantic, when in fact he never left England? Shakespeare answered the young man's question. The best way to be a writer is to start writing, he began. What I know, if I know, I have imagined. If you want to be a writer and speak to others and for others, speak first for yourself. Search within. Consider the contents of your own soul, your humanity. And if you're honest with yourself, then whatever you write, all is true. Wise words and sage advice. Writers of novels often say that when the creative imagination takes over, the characters come to life and live themselves. It's an amazing feeling when the book begins to write itself, one of the reasons I'm passionate about writing fiction these days. That mysterious flow is the muse at work. The artist Pablo Picasso once said, Everything you can imagine is real. Genius physicist Albert Einstein had many things to say about imagination as well. For example, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. 
And imagination is everything, Einstein said. It is the preview of life's coming attractions. Being true to yourself is at the core of contemplative life and its creative expressions. This is something I've learned time and again. The muse knows the difference between what is real and what is unreal, including and especially in you. The muse knows your deepest, truest, and often hidden longings. And I think this, you know, I'm glad that you picked that excerpt, Paula, because it really highlights imagination. And imagination, in the way that I use this this word, is really access to the deep soul within and to the wisdom within us. And the creative the creativity that just once we really tap that vein in ourselves, it just comes gushing forth. But we probably most of us might we might have to do some work to clear the way to open that up. We might have to do some some work with ourselves, working with those obstacles um, that we all we all have within us. The other thing that it highlights is the point about. Um, when we do access imagine real, the true imagination of the soul, that we access what is real. And that is so crucial for us in these times because we don't know what's real. I mean, in, in our culture at, at large, the culture at large is so full of what is unreal and constantly pummeling us with the unreal, strengthening our own spiritual connection within getting in touch with what is, in fact, real like with a capital r real is so crucial for us lovely thank you i encourage everyone to go get this book it's such a gift if you are looking for better ways to understand astrology and yourself you are in luck because i have a course out now called The Planets. And it goes in depth into the stories of the planets, their characteristics, how we can have a relationship with them, how they may afflict us and what to do about it. You also learn a lot about karma, about Vedic astrology and what it is, where it originates from, how to read your chart. So it's a pretty in-depth look and a helpful tool for you to better understand astrology. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to weaveyourbliss.teachable.com. You'll see the planets there and you can click through and learn more. I want to talk to you about a related subject, which I think is pilgrimage, which is it's an outer experience of maybe going to these sacred places in the world. I've done some of it myself in India, mostly and in Europe, like you have actually, I think we've been in some of the same places because I got some advice from you when I was in Europe last and doing a sort of pilgrimage. And I know you've been on the Camino, which is on my list, I would love to do the Camino. But there's also these inner worlds, you know, of pilgrimage within ourselves. And so you told me in one of your emails that you call yourself a spiritual wanderer instead of a spiritual practitioner. Also, just layering on to this, like, I was looking at your chart and I was like, this is a spiritual life. Like, literally, you were born with your moon in Jeshta, which is in a deep 
position in Scorpio. It's also in the ninth house. It's with Mercury. You started your life with a focus on the ninth house. And then that unfolded over your life. You know, you had your moon period, you have this beautiful, strong Venus in the eighth. So you've got a lot of like juice around the spiritual being your anchor, whatever that looks like and keeping the focus there. So I'm, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about pilgrimage, about why you call yourself a spiritual wanderer and how that relates to our conversation. In Tolkien's book, great books, The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says, all who wander are not lost. And I love this. Of course, I'm a big fan of Tolkien because his work so embodies the mythic reality and archetypal reality. And they're just so such an incredible, brilliant genius um, expression of life on uh, of the spiritual path and w- what is demanded of us if we're really seeking inner transformation. So this idea of being a wanderer, I, uh, the, I'm working on my own memoir. It's one of my writing projects. And I tentatively have it titled Wandering Songs because it's a, a compilation of essays of, of like, you know, different moments, you know, over the years, pivotal experiences. And because we do wander, life is a journey and it is not a straight shot from A to Z. It is really, it's, it's goes all over. It takes us many different places. And, you know, the bowels have this beautiful metaphor of being a honey gathering that at like the like a bee in a garden going from flower to flower and sandhya basha this is twilight language for the soul that is seeking this true spiritual path the divine process of evolution over lifetimes that we are wanderers in the in the vast ocean of life the ocean of samsara is you know many as many traditions uh, use that imagery but I like to think, and I, this is my training in, uh, from my teacher, that it, it actually, all of this is real. It's not unreal. This, these worlds, this world of the earth, these worlds that we wander in, they're all real. They're unreal if we have illusions about them, if we have clarity and we are, we are rooted in the realization of oneness the non-dual realization of oneness. And we have a a deep intention to have that kind of um, divine clarity. Then everything becomes very real. The wandering is actually the calling of the soul that is leading us through this journey that we're on and leading us to different locations where we, you know, in certain places and moments in our lives, we taste the, the rasa, the nectar, receive a transmission from our teachers, our gurus, or from our direct experience of reality as human beings. And our humanity is very much a part of this. Uh, this, this you know, we wander because we are human beings and we wander because we're, we have a calling and we have a quest and it's leading us on. And the more rooted we are in the spiritual context, in the context of our love of, for me and in my path as a, as a Western Baal, the, my love of divinity, where I experience deity in everything, in nature, in other human beings, in the night sky, in the rain that falls. I mean, here in the high desert, we've been so blessed to have a monsoon season this year after 
terrible no monsoon last year, completely dry. So the rain itself becomes this expression or you know direct experience of rasa of nectar and it's very sweet and it's very it's full of grace and it's it's a blessing so literally that becomes you know as time goes on the wandering is more what's happening within this this openness to experience to be willing to go with life's flow and to empower it you know for ourselves to to recognize that god the divine the deity the great mother however we relate with that the great spirit is present moment to moment in our lives in whatever it is so that's you know where the wandering life goes but my teacher lee had this phrase that he used the great process of divine evolution my other teacher cg young spoke of the great process of the evolution of being. There's a telos, a meaningful, purposeful intention behind the flow of events and the flow of experience, which is our wandering. And that that's taking everything in creation. And Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, my Mahaguru, said the same thing. He said, everything is going toward the totality. And so what does that mean? You know, as as Western Baal, for me, what that means is that everything, every created thing will eventually in this great process of divine evolution be awakened to its true nature. Which is, of course, as you know, created a creation of the that which creates the creator. Mother, father, God, whatever we want to call that. But this devotional aspect is, for me, is very inherent in the idea of, in, in the idea of wandering. The essential, like seeking beauty, you know, as a creative person, the um, necessity for beauty. Beauty is literally uh, feeding us and helping us to deal with the struggles that we have in this world today and the sorrows that we have. Because we have to be present to all of that. It is real. It's what's happening. How are we going to do that? So that's a little bit about wandering. Uh, if you have some more specific questions about it, yeah, bring them up. I mean, I'm curious like what you would say in light of that, in light of your path having been kind of a wandering path. Like, What does it mean then to live in your purpose? Is it to follow that flow? And to see what unfolds and to be with what's real in that context, you know, because that's what this whole podcast is about is like finding different ways to talk about how we live in our purpose and getting people's thoughts on that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, all of that, uh, what you just said, you know, how do we get in touch with purpose? This is a, a lifetime work, because it's not like you get it once, and then you have it. In my experience is that it's an ongoing work in progress. And so what is what my purpose was, um, how my purpose is manifesting in, in reality, the threads of, of that, of that in my life, how it's manifesting 20 years ago is different than how it's asking to come forward and be lifted up by me now. So I have to keep listening with it. And of course, there's nothing like the, the formal practices to help us out with that. And there are periods of time in my experience on the path that the formal practices 
not to give them up or or reject them. Absolutely not. But that something else is required. The more the spontaneous flow, kind of a wide open space of dropping concepts and any religiosity can really get in the way. At some point, and this is very much bowel culture, bowel inner culture, we have to look at on our spiritual path how we've concretized or how we've written in stone something or how we use our meditation practice to just check off. Okay, I did that today. I'm a good girl. I mean, being a little bit glib about it, but that at some point we have to really get beyond concept and structure. Uh, there's a, a beautiful story of Yogi Ramsarat Kumar that after the divine madness took him over, he had chanted Om Shri Ram Jaram JJ Ram for a week at the instruction of his guru, Swami Ramdas. And he was thrown into a state of divine madness and he became very problematic on the ashram in, in Kanangad at, at, in Kerala, Ananda Ashram. And he would throw himself at, at, uh, at Papa, Papa's feet, Papa Ramdas's feet and at Madhaji, uh, Mother Krishnabai, the woman who was the, 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 uh, spiritual counterpart of Ramdas. He would throw himself at, at Mataji's feet and he worshiped them and, and he made himself a real nuisance to the other devotees, as we can imagine. This is wonderful, you know, that he did this. But Ramdas brought a very uh, sharp sword down on him and he said, go. And he said, you are too focused in the saguna, the, the personal, and you need to go to nirguna. You need to go to the impersonal. This is part of the process and the process of letting go of concepts, letting go of what has been and and being um, willing to keep growing even into our own wilderness. We don't know anymore. So purpose is a thread that runs through all of that. I don't know how much time we have, but there's a beautiful myth that Plato gives that he tells in his discourses. It's called the myth of Ur. And it's kind of a long story, but in short, what this myth tells, as most myths are, uh, this what this myth tells us is that is that the soul before it's born, at, it's in the cosmos at the knee of the goddess who is spinning the world. And the three fates are there. And the three fates each give a gift to the soul that's passing through after death. The soul is getting ready to come back into the earth plane. But one of the gifts is that there is a thread that will follow us throughout our lives, the thread of the purpose we have taken on. The interesting thing is that the first fate, they're all female characters, of course. So the first fate, they're the daughters of the goddess of necessity who's weaving the world. The first fate says, you have to pick your own destiny for this next incarnation. We will not give it to you. You decide. And so that happens. And the second fate gives the gift of a daemon, like a guardian angel. There are many ways to understand that. But this is twilight language. So a guardian angel who's going to be present throughout your life to help you follow the thread of your purpose. And then the third fate seals all of that and says, okay, 
Now it's all decided. It's in place. It's irrevocable. So go on about your way. And as the soul goes on about his or her way, they have to cross the the plane of forgetfulness. So coming back into the next incarnation, we've forgotten that we chose this purpose, but it's present. And if we're open, if we're continuing to open and be willing to go into the inner wilderness in ourselves and to let go of concepts, then we can hear what that angel, that demon, Damon, um, Mm -hmm. is saying to us about our purpose now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, life is change. Things change. I wanted to ask you in light of that, in light of, you know, we're all on these individual journeys. We're also on a collective journey. And so you told us just to bring it full circle. You were moved by what was happening in the late 60s. And it caused you to actually do something radical, go back to the land, you know, and so there's other things in this book as well. If if people pick it up and read it, you know, where you were involved in the Native American movement and trying to make change, you know, in light of what was happening. So what do you think now looking back, like about how we make change or what our role is now as things are changing to help support our collective growth and evolution? Oh, that's such a great question, Paula. What I understand, what I understood uh, actually even before I met my guru, but uh, then, uh, of course, this was very reinforced by Lee and his teachings and uh, all of my experiences of years of practice, that it's the individual, it's the transformation of the individual that makes a difference. And so this thing of finding our life's purpose, this is, it's not a light thing. It's a heavy thing. It's heavyweight. It's a huge responsibility because our own, my, my personal transformation, your transformation is what will make a difference to the world soul, to the collective humanity. I feel very strongly about this and I, I'm going to see if I can find a quote that I love. Maybe I'll find it later and come back to it from um, Michael Mead, the storyteller and he's a scholar of myth and, and, um, and also of Jung's work, C.G. Jung and, but he's very strong on this point too, and it's something that that has become very real to me. It's not it's not a concept. It's really tangible that our individual transformation is what what we really have to contribute. So I'm not involved politically. I'm more involved through prayer at this point in my life. That prayer is is very very uh, a very powerful doorway. And allowing myself to be moved by the suffering in the world, being willing to feel it, to develop compassion and generosity through that. I think I found the quote, which is transformation at the level of the individual soul generates the imagination and collective energy needed to change the conditions of the world. Is that the one? Yes. He says the same thing many times in many different ways, because it's something he's really emphasizing on his podcasts and in his teachings and workshops. And it's so beautiful. And I do think we're going through a collective kind of awakening, you know, through my own work with clients, through what I'm seeing in the world, I feel like that's kind of what's happening. That's sort of shaking the old order, you know? So as we do our own work, we raise the collective in beautiful and amazing ways, you know, and we tend to our heartbreak. I think you talk about that in the book too, like tend to, the ways that the world breaks our heart and find beauty and find places of joy and love 
in the midst of that is a radical act as well. Absolutely. Um, really, heartbreak is, is such a, an important part of the spiritual path. And we might think we want to avoid it, but actually it's something we need to move toward, which is true of you know the creative process of this. You move toward the feeling, the bhava, whatever it is, which may, may be deep, deep sorrow. That something beautiful comes out of that grief and sorrow, you know, are, are very powerful creative forces and transformational forces within us. So heartbreak is something that I've learned that I, I must embrace and move mm-hmm. forward and let it have its way with me. This is what I talk to my clients about using the lens of Saturn because Saturn is all of our karmas. You know, it's the biggest karmic knots. It's the most thing, the things we're most afraid of, the places we doubt ourselves the most. And the only way to figure it out is to move toward it. And a lot of us want to move away because it's really uncomfortable. But when you move toward it and you look at it and you untie the knot a little bit, then then there's relief. Then Then we get somewhere. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about throughout this conversation. I would love to ask you some rapid fire questions if you're open to it. There. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? I would say that one piece of advice uh, is from my teacher, Lee, which is, I have many different pieces of advice from him, but let's, let's use this one, seek beauty and avoid suffering. And what he meant by the second part, seek beauty, okay, we can pretty pretty easily get that. What he meant by avoid suffering is avoid unnecessary suffering. My friend Lalita calls luxury suffering. Mm-hmm. The suffering that we don't need to go through that we inflict upon ourselves because there's plenty of real suffering that we can work with. So that's this, this uh, thing of seeking beauty is very, has been a very great piece of advice. And another piece of advice that I've heard from our mutual friend, Robert, Svoboda many times is relax. <laughs> and, and, you know, my guru used to say this too. And especially at the end of his life, many times he said, relax. And so this is very big. You know, if we really contemplate what it means to relax, then we, we've got a big piece of work on our hands and plenty to investigate and inquire about and to practice into, to live into what it is to truly relax. And that involves a lot of letting go and a lot of inner work. So those are great pieces of pieces of advice. And here's another piece of advice also from my teacher. Make the path your own. And I have really used this and embraced this uh, as a Cohen since he died in 2010. And, you know, five days after I turned 60. And his death really catalyzed a huge, huge transformation for me, a total overhaul of my life and the forms of my life. And this thing of making the path your own is the the questions that we have today about spiritual authority and religions and the, the shadow side of this whole world of spiritual authority and religion and religious forms and institutions and so on. Uh, a lot of shadow material there. And it's really good because we need to see these things. We need to bring them to, to light. But, but this advice of make the path your own is about finding what is true for me and taking, taking from all these different places, like, you know, the, 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 you know, being a, a gathering honey 
from all these different sources of wisdom, but finding out finally what is true for me and rooting myself on the spiritual path, on the path of transformation. This rooting of, uh, of uh, being grounded and deep, have deep tap roots into the path is, is really, really important for us as human beings. Mm, wonderful. And there's, there's so much sage advice in this book as well. There's lots of quotes and things that you've picked up along the way. So people can find a lot of that in here. When you feel anxious or confused or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? Uh, the first thing I do to ground myself is I pay attention to my breath. I start, you know, some conscious breathing. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I one of the books that I recommend in the book, uh, The Art of Contemplation, is this book called Breath by James mm-hmm. Nestor, um, which is a m- marvelous book on breath. Um, and it, it has uh, it gives a, a lot of help in that regard of like simple breaths, but simple breathing techniques or prana. And he goes also into more traditional pranayama at the end of the book, but um, um, just paying attention and breathing with awareness is a powerful act that brings me back to the present moment instead of my spinning out into past and future. And there, of course, we know in the present moment, we have access to a lot of different resources within ourselves if we can stay there. So I start with paying attention to my breath. I, I have, you know, mantras that I've worked with for years that I, you know, particularly the name of my Mahaguru Yogi Ramsrakmar, I'll turn to that. But I also, those, those things usually lead me either to nature, creativity, or maybe, or, or just being with myself in the burn of whatever it is that I'm working with, the conflict of the opposites, as we say in the, in the Jungian tradition, being willing to stay with whatever is burning in me at that moment and breathe with it and just be present to it. That usually gives me the next unfolding of what I need to do. That's perfect. And we'll add the link. We'll add the name of the James Nestor book, which I also love. And it gives you a lot of science. So if you're really into that, you can learn more. What is your favorite hot beverage? Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Straight up. (laughs) What would be your last meal on earth? (laughs) I don't know for sure. I don't know. Maybe uh, ripe mangoes. Oh, probably Mexican food in some form. Mm. Salsa and some, you know, fabulous homemade salsa filled with cilantro and spicy good things. And Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable for you? Non-negotiable for me is that I I make offerings at the Vigraha, the the, um, empowered image of my Mahaguru Yogi Ramsarakumar who is uh, both mother and father. So when I make those offerings of incense and light and water and, and flower, a flower, I am making an offering to the totality, you know, that includes the mother God and the father God. As I say that because this inclusion of the feminine aspect of divinity has become so crucially important to me. It's always been important to me. It's been important to me since the 70s when 
for me, the earth was the divine mother during those years in my first community. So that's my non-negotiable is um, to make those offerings of gratitude and thanksgiving and devotional worship. So something people might not know about you. I think there are many things that that people might not know about me, actually. Um, Well, okay, this is an easy one. Uh, Most people don't know that I drove big trucks, the 18-wheelers that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. in the podcast, in our conversation, that I actually did drive those for three years and and delivered natural foods to different co-ops and storefronts in the Midwest, the South, all the way to California. People might not know that about me. And that was a a wonderful time of really exploring the masculine energy in me, the one that can be totally steady behind the wheel. Um, What are you reading right now? Well, I've just finished a series of books that were just fantastic. The last one was the memoir that's written by Kumari Ellis. It's titled Tracing the Moon. And it's a memoir of her seven years in of living in India. She's a British and she was a, a hospice nurse and she had some experiences that just catapulted her to India. She lived there for seven years and had a lot of big adventures. And she was uh, and is, I think, a disciple of, of Punjaji. And so her memoir is just a fabulous read. I recommend it. And if you love India... You will love this book because her descriptions of North India in particular, the Himalayas and the the Ganga, are just breathtakingly beautiful. Wonderful. We'll put it in the show notes. And Thank you. And currently I'm reading a book called Ariadne, which is the myth of Ariadne, the Minotaur and the Theseus, uh, Theseus who comes, the hero Theseus. So currently I'm reading that. And that's by Jennifer Saint. What is one thing that brings you joy right now? Playing the piano brings me so much joy. I love to I love to play the piano. Hmm. And maybe that's something that some people don't know about me. I mean I love the piano and I love the ectara and um these but the piano in particular just brings me tremendous joy. Where can people find you online or is there anything you mentioned you might have some workshops coming up but can you give us your Instagram, your 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 website, so that we know where to find you. Yes, my my website is maryangelonyoung.com. Very easy to find. And Angelon, you'll put this in the show notes, so they'll know how to spell yeah. that. And my Instagram is the same. It's just my name, and I can be contacted through my website. I do answer contacts if people want to get in touch with me. Because I live off grid and, you know, do water catchment and solar energy and all that sort of thing, I don't answer immediately. Just so, just a little um, FYI, I don't answer immediately, but I will answer because I have to drive down or walk down the, the mesa to the ground, to the earth down, down to the prairie where I, I have an office that's on, it's actually on the grid. And I can get internet access. And your book is available on Amazon directly from Home Press? Yes. Or how, how do they get it? They can get my books on from Amazon and from Home Press. That when in all, Most of my books have been published by Home Press, but I have some other books that are published by uh, Sirsa Press coming out. And they're going to be available 
by January 2022. And this is my trilogy. It's a historical fiction trilogy that came out of one of my pilgrimages to a Glastonbury to the summer country, Somerset in England. So those will be available soon on my website and also through Amazon. But that's coming up and that's 2022. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really lovely talking to you. It's been great talking to you, Paula, and so wonderful to see you again. It's been some years now since we were together in France. and Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.